You are listening to audio from Central Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you would like to get more involved or get more information about our church, stick around after the message. Thank you for being here today. You need your Bibles. We're going to use them this morning. The first place we're going to use them is Leviticus chapter 18. Second place will be Matthew 19. And then we'll wrap up with Romans chapter number 1. Appreciate the worship team. Thank you all. Did a good job today. Um, It is Yesterday was Raymond's. 17th birthday, 17 years old. Yes, he got to practice some driving. Um, so they let us know, though. So if you are friends with them on Facebook, that's when to avoid the roads. I'm kidding, Raymond. We love them. It's really nice having Tammy here with us this morning as well. Yes. Um, so over the last few weeks, we've talked about a lot. And um, I can just be completely honest with you. We've talked about sex a whole lot more than I'm comfortable with. (laughs) Um, We've talked about sex before marriage, pornography, divorce, adultery. The goal of the series was simple. Talk through these difficult topics about sex, marriage, sexual identity, using the Bible as a source of truth, and as the authority for our lives. Every single person in this room, every single person in the world has an opinion. But since we are Christians, our source for truth should be the Bible. The Bible should be our standard for our conduct, the springboard for our opinions, and the final authority for that which is right and that which is wrong. This morning, I need to frame the message. We're talking about a controversial topic, at least according to the world. In my opinion, the Bible makes it plain. Um, But Christian, please, don't use this message to arm your religious guns, and they'll go blast them off into the world. If someone disagrees with you on this topic, don't use your armed guns to beat them over the head with the Bible. Okay. Um, in fact, really the only danger in preaching this message is that some of us may weaponize it to hurt people that need Jesus. I'm convinced that this topic that we're going to talk about, if you know people that struggle with it, it shouldn't be the first thing you talk about with them. It shouldn't probably even be the second or third thing. You need to get to know people before you share things like this. Um, I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, I don't know if we'll have this opportunity, probably won't. Um, But if God gives us the opportunity to talk about our salvation stories when we receive the gospel, I doubt anybody up there is going to be like, yeah, there was this one time after you preached the message that one of your church members got in an argument with me on Facebook and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I don't think that is ever going to happen. Um, uh, So be careful with a sermon like this, okay? 
Um, but I want to start with a, a question. I need your response. Um, I think it's a safe question to ask. But I also um, uh, want to get on the same page briefly. It is kind of a humdinger, though. All right? I don't know if you've ever been asked this question. If you've come to church at Central Baptist, I know you have because I've asked that at least once before. Um, uh, are you ready? Yeah. You're probably wondering. <laughs> is incest sinful? If you say yes, raise your hand. I just want you to know everybody else is watching you right now. <laughs> if it, is incest sinful? Yes. Okay. At least I think everybody acknowledged that yes, incest is a sin. It's not a trick question. I agree 100% with you. Incest is sinful. But can I ask a, a more difficult question? Using the Bible, and only the Bible, how would you prove that incest is sinful? Does the Bible mention incest? It actually does quite a bit. The Bible gives clear examples. Moses' father, Amram, married Jochebed, who was Amram's aunt. Did you know that? Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. Um, the simple, uh, think about this. If you go all the way back to the creation story, Adam, Eve get married. They have children. But who do the children marry and have kids with? Yeah, it's uncomfortable to think about. But you know who it had to be? Brother and sisters. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Think about after the uh, Noah's Ark. Noah's on the Ark. Noah has his wife. Noah has three sons. Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Sham, Ham, and Japheth has wives. And that's it. So they get off of the Ark... And they have children, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. But who do their children marry? We're not in Alabama this morning, but they married their cousins. Um, there are other examples of ancestral relationships in the Old Testament. Most of the examples are before the law was given. But after seeing these examples from God's word about incest, do you still believe? That incest is a sin? Let me muddy the waters even a little bit more. The New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, never once does it outright condemn incest. Jesus never once talked about incest. Not one time. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, you can maybe stretch that to talk about incest, maybe. But in fact, the only prohibition for incest is in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're going to read one right now. Look at verse number 6 of Leviticus 18. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him. To uncover their nakedness, I am the Lord. Most of the rest of that chapter... You can read it now if you'd like to. Delineates who the kin is. Mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa. Kin. We're in Texas. We know what that word means. Kin. It's our relatives. I'm not really sure if Moses was dealing with this at the time and had to delineate. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if you go to the passage in Deuteronomy, 
it pretty much says the exact same thing. Um, and so from Leviticus in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, both of which are in the law, the Pentateuch, can we say almost 3,000 years later, or almost 4,000 years later, that we can just use those two passages and call incest a sin? If you say yes, does that mean that believers in 2023 uh, are under the Old Testament law? Do we have to follow those commands that say you can't wear mixed fabric? I'm in trouble if that's the case. <laughs> um, uh, do we have to avoid things like shellfish? We had a men's prayer breakfast yesterday, and Brother Gary brought delicious bacon. Do we have to avoid bacon? If you say no, does that mean we're picking and choosing? In fact, I have been asked by people who aren't believers and people that struggle with the topic at hand today, that, and they have said things like, well, you just pick and choose what you believe. You just pick and choose the verses you follow in the Old Testament and the verses you ignore. And I've almost always replied with, you know what? You're right. I do pick and choose Old Testament passages that I follow and Old Testament passages that I don't follow. And they're usually looking at me like, well, why? How, how can you do that? And the, the reason is I know why I pick and choose, especially the Old Testament. The only reason why they pick and choose is to win an argument against a Christian. But I know why I pick and choose. Do you? You see, in the Old Testament, there are three different types of law, which is vitally important for every Christian to know today. The first type of law is the civil law. This was the law that God gave in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Exodus that delineated how the Israelites were supposed to live day to day. It, it talked about the clothes that they were allowed to wear, how they were to raise their crops, how they were to handle disputes in the nation. It was all the civil law. You and I have a civil law in America. It tells us the things that we're supposed to do in our cars, things that we're not supposed to do in our cars. It tells us how we're supposed to interact with neighbors and all of these different things. It's the exact same thing. Can I take my civil law that I have in America, and if I go and visit Israel today, can I say you have to follow the laws that I have in my homeland? Of course not. They don't apply to them. And just like my laws in Texas don't apply to people in Israel today, the law that God gave to Israel over 3,000 years ago doesn't apply to me today. So I don't choose to follow that. I don't have to follow that. But then there is a ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was all of the laws that had to do with the worship in Israel back under the Old Testament covenant. Things like how to sacrifice animals, the clothes that the priests were supposed to wear, um, the way the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to be built and all of these different laws. And there's chapter after chapter in the Old Testament about them. But when I got dressed this morning, I didn't forget to put my ephod on. I don't have one. <laughs> but yet the priest in the Old Testament had to wear an ephod. I don't choose to follow that because I don't have to follow that. This was the portion of the law that Jesus fulfilled. Aren't you glad that after the service, I'm not going to go outside and kill a baby goat for your sins? Amen. Jesus already took care of that. I don't have to follow that. But there's a third section. It's called the moral law. 
the moral law was foundationally built upon the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And from there, we have all kinds of other uh, laws that go under the umbrella of the Ten Commandments. And a huge portion of those laws are sexual sins. Now, do we get pleasure from looking at the Old Testament and finding these verses and calling certain things sinful? Like today, I would still agree with you 100% that incest is a sin. I'm hoping that was never up for disagreement this morning. Using the Old Testament law, the passage that we just read, I can declare to you with the authority of God's word that incest is sinful. But do I get any pleasure this morning from calling incest a sin? Not even a little bit. Are we who hate, who have, who hate, who have fallen into incestual relationships? I don't. I hope you don't. Do, do we think that we're better than them? Of course we don't. Do we think that we're the only ones that have um, the ability to get past these sexual sins like that? No, of course not. All we're saying is that the Bible teaches that since it's sinful, it's going to cause you and those around you pain. And because of that, there is a better way to live. That's all we're saying. With that as our foundation. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19 and read from God's word together. This is where we were last week. We're not going to get as in-depth as we were last week. This is just to build up to the main point this morning. Look with me at verse 1. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Then uh, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away to divorce his wife for every cause, for any cause? So they come to him asking a question about divorce. I love how Jesus answers. Verse 4 says, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore? They are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this time around your word. Pray that you bless the reading therein. Help us to be impacted by this message. In your name I pray. Amen. Last week we talked about uh, divorce. We talked about marriage. Um, And I love what Jesus does here. The Pharisees are trying to trip him up. Ask a question about divorce. So Jesus takes the conversation from the culture, puts it back in the Bible, and goes all the way back to the creation story. Jesus treats the creation story literally, and he talks about a literal Adam, talks about a literal Eve, and he views their relationship as the design for marriage. So when God is answering this question about divorce, he doesn't first talk about divorce. He shares God's biblical plan, God's design for marriage. I want to just very briefly, very quickly, talk about God's design. Number one, God made a partner for a man. During creation, God saw everything and he called it good. But there is one thing that God determined was not good. It was that man was made alone. 
And so God decides to make him a partner. Number two, God creates a bride for the groom. God causes Adam to go to sleep. And he does the first surgery ever recorded. And he pulls a rib out of Adam. And he begins to form Adam and Eve. And one thing that we see from this is that when God was creating everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, he spoke it into being. And it just was there. Isn't that amazing to think about? He spoke the sun, and there's the sun. He spoke the moon, there's the moon. Right? It's unbelievable to think about the power of God. Psalm 19 talks about our uh, star-breathing God. Um, uh, but then when he gets to us, mankind, he doesn't do this for dogs or cats. He doesn't do this for any other part of the animal kingdom. But when he gets to us, he uses his own hands to form Adam from the dust and Eve from the rib of man. We literally today have the fingerprint of God on our own DNA. So he begins to form us. God formed every part of our bodies. It was by God's hand. He used his hand to form our fingers. He used his hand to create our eyes, our teeth, and even our reproductive parts. God made the man's and then God made the woman's reproductive parts. And then God would say, they shall be one flesh. Friend, this is sexual language. God designed the man and the woman's parts to fit together. Number three, this is a good spot to say amen. <laughs> Number three, marriage involves responsibility. He, he tells us that we're supposed to leave. We leave mom and dad and we then cleave to our spouse. It means to be stuck together, to form a strong bond, to stick like glue. The two become one. Here's what's important. We didn't talk about this. What God designed in Genesis gives a marriage answer. You know what he says? There is one man. And there's one woman. Many people will say that Jesus never talked about homosexual marriage. That is true. But he also never said anything about incest. But when asked a question about marriage, Jesus reaffirmed the Genesis account. Jesus said man and woman. This isn't just a physical point that we're talking about today. It is most certainly a theological point as well. God designed marriage to picture something deeper than just one man and one woman. Every biblical scripture that talks about marriage is a picture of the relationship that the church enjoys with our Savior, Jesus. You see, according to scripture, the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. The only marriage that fits that theological picture is a man and a woman. Marriage is not a civil institution in our eyes. It's a divine institution. While the state issues marriage licenses, for the believer, the Bible is the source for regulations on marriage and not the state. Marriage is a gracious gift of God that unites a man and woman as one flesh in God's sight. Marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to us as men. When we obey God's commands concerning sex within a marriage relationship, it is one of the greatest blessings to mankind. But when we don't, it's one of the biggest curses to mankind. Let's talk about that. Number two. Now that's a question today. 
We're going to answer that in 2023. Aren't you glad you came to church? Does the Bible state that homosexuality is a sin? Look with me. Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter number one. We're going to start actually in verse number 22. Verse 22 says in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Don't we see that today? I mean, we, we have the most educated generation in the history of the world. There are more people that have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and doctorates than in any point in history. And yet, when I watch the news or when I travel, or when I go to Walmart, I am convinced that all of these people that have spent a lifetime in school are just as stupid today as the day they were born. <laughs> right? It doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to see it. We profess ourselves to be wise, and yet many act like fools. Now, notice some of the words in the next few, past, the next few verses. And change, that's a, a word that means exchanged. So they had something good, and then they exchanged it for something evil. Look what it says. And exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Look at verse... Um, 24 says, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So what, what Paul is doing is he, he's saying that this is something that they exchanged. And here's the conclusion of the matter. So they exchanged the worship for God to the worship to created things. And verse 24 tells us what happened because of it. The apostle Paul goes further, verse 25 who changed or exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. So again, Paul says this is something good that they exchanged for something evil. And here's what happens, verse 26. For this cause, for this reason, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. In our text today, we see how men exchange the truth of God for a lie. From there, men began to worship the created more than the creator, this means they exchanged the right perception of God for falsehood, for false views of God, and they exchanged the true God for false gods, namely themselves, their own vile passion became their God. There's a word for this. It's called hedonism. Hedonism is literally being overcome with your passions and only trying to fulfill your passions. 
the worst of all possible bargains is to trade God's truth for a lie. Because lies never lead back to God, they leave you away from him. Exchanging truth for lies causes one to be self-deceived, and we're living in a culture of self-deception. When truth and a lie are placed side by side, they choose to serve the creature or man's reasonings rather than the creator. They pass by the creator and chose to be man-centered, to place mankind first and thus worshipped, adored, revered themselves. The order of God's magnificent creation is turned into man's chaos. Humanity exchanged the authentic for the counterfeit, and as a consequence, God gave them over to that which they so perversely desired. For this cause, for this reason, because of man's rejecting the true God for false gods of his own making, for worshiping the creation rather than the creator, God gave them up to degrading passion. The word affection in the King James is the Greek word pathos. And in your Bibles, it's always used in a bad, vile, repulsive sense. Another point. There is not one positive mention anywhere in the Bible about homosexuality. Nowhere. Um, and we have to understand that this isn't God's best for us. It is one of the grim facts of life that the more one sins the easier it becomes to continue to sin. One may begin with the kind of shuddering awareness that what they're doing is wrong and try to hide it from those around them and even try to stay away from it as long as they can. But if we continue down that path, we end up sinning in a way without a second thought. They exchange the natural affection, the way nature is, the natural order of things, male and female. Once you have begun dishonoring the sacredness the dignity and purity of your body, the vile floodgates of unnatural physical sin can burst open. Perversion is the evil and twisted expression of that which is God-given. The aberration of homosexuality is addressed in verse 27. It talks about being burned, to, to burn out with lust and passion. Romans 1 makes it clear that homosexuality is sexual perversion, and to put it plainly, is sinful. The sin results in serious judgment for those involved. The Bible says at the end of verse 27 that they receive the due penalty, the recompense for their error, for their sin. The natural result of their sin, which pays them back for what they have done, this evil consequence occurs because they are ordained by divine law. They suffer. During the introduction of my sermon today, we looked at Leviticus 18, and only Leviticus 18, to help us determine, through the Bible, that incest is indeed a sin. The law defined it as a sin, and it has been a sin ever since. The chapter talks about other sexual sins, though, including a now infamous verse. Look at Leviticus 18.22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. 
Two chapters later, Leviticus 20, verse 13, it talks about the same sin of homosexuality. All it really took, remember, everybody agreed, was a single passage from Leviticus to help us determine that incest was sinful. Because that is pretty much all the Bible has to say about it. We have just seen two different passages and referred to a third. One of these passages is from the exact same chapter about incest. And it also condemns homosexuality. Can I ask you, is that enough for you to stand on scripture and say, yes, homosexuality is a sin as well? Friend, realize the biggest difference today between incest and homosexuality in our culture is that our culture accepts one and not the other. May I ask, is the culture your barometer for what you determine is right or wrong? Or is it the truth found in God's word? Can I give you more of God's word? Please say yes. Thank you. Another difference between incest and homosexuality is that the Bible actually says much more about homosexuality than it ever does about incest. In Genesis 19, we see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels that appeared like men go to Lot's home. All of the men of the town see him, and they try to beat down the door to get to them. And the Bible says, in verse 5, to bring them out so they can have sex with them. Because of this, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Today, some people will look at that and say, well, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't destroyed just because of homosexuality. And they're technically right. The Bible actually gives a long list of things. But many times when they try to prove that homosexuality wasn't the reason that Sodom and Gomorrah was pinpointed, they'll only go to one verse, Ezekiel 16, 49, because it lists in that one verse some of the reasons. It says pride, gluttony, laziness, and inhospitality, whatever that word is. (laughs) But they stop there because in verse number 50, it says that it was the abomination, obviously referring to homosexuality. Jude chapter 1, verse 7. Jude highlights the sin of homosexuality as the reason for destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality is also clearly viewed as the sin of judgment in Judges 19, 15 through 25, and 1 Kings 14, verse 24. In the New Testament, there are a few passages that we will look at together, but here's one of them. 1 Timothy 1, 9. The Apostle Paul kind of puts this topic under the umbrella of the Old Testament law and says that this portion of the law is still standing today. Look what it says. Knowing this, that the law is not made for righteous man because there's only one righteous man, but to the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. For whoremongers, what a word. For them that devile themselves with mankind. If you're reading from any other version besides the King James and the New King James, they translate that word that's used in other places as homosexuality. For men stealers. And just so you know, that's not about stealing a man from another woman. That's kidnapping. For liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Friend, I didn't write any of those verses, 
that wasn't my imagination that made them. This is how God views homosexuality. According to the Bible, passages in the Old Testament and New Testament, homosexuality is sinful. A word of warning. We live in a world, and the church has now been impacted by this. I'm going to guess that our church would be in the minority in believing this. But we live in a world where everyone wants the freedom to act however they want to act. In order for some to live however they want, they use the scriptures and they try to bend the scriptures to their lifestyle. Many have tried to use God's word to defend their homosexual lifestyle. Let me quickly go through four things that they'll say to you if you take this stand. The first thing they'll say, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Well, Jesus didn't mention incest either. Does that then make incest okay? Jesus never mentioned bestiality. I'm hoping nobody here has to hear a sermon to say bestiality is sinful. Jesus never mentioned pedophilia. I'm hoping I don't have to preach a sermon next Sunday to denounce pedophilia as sinful. Jesus never mentioned polygamy. Since Jesus didn't mention it, does it make all of those things okay now? Number two, they will say, well, love is love. And since love is love, all love comes from God. Is that really true? The obvious biblical answer is no. 1 John chapter 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there is most certainly a love that comes from the world, and there is most certainly a love that comes from the Father. And if you have the love of the world, the Bible tells us right here that you don't have the love of the Father. Friend, this is a slippery slope. If we say all love is love, if all love is equal, that must mean that incest is okay. If we say all love is equal, that must mean pedophilia is okay because I know a man in jail right now who would look at you and tell you that, yes, I love that boy. Friend, we have to draw the line somewhere. A Christian should draw the line where the Bible has already drawn it. Number three, it's natural for a homosexual to be gay. That's the way they were made. We've already talked about this a little bit in a sermon previous, um, and this is a big one. And they will go back to Romans 1 and try to prove this. Because in Romans 1 it says they leave the natural for the unnatural, right? And they will try to say that the sin that Paul is talking about in Romans 1 isn't homosexuality. It's pedantry. Pedantry was a sinful thing that straight men did. They had a homosexual act, not with a consenting adult, but with a boy for religious uses. So stray man, leaving the natural use of his body, to do sexual things with a boy for a religious purpose. I don't think I have to tell you that that's definitely sinful. Okay? Um, but that is not at all what Romans 1 is talking about. Romans 1 is ta not talking about that for a number of reasons, but just a quick one. The first thing he talks about is not man. Did you notice in verse 26 he talks about women, not man. The second reason is because that is not in view in any part of Romans chapter 1. The only thing in view there is two consenting uh, adults. And even that, Paul tells us, is sinful. But they will go on and say, well, it's not against nature because nature gives us all kinds of things that point to homosexuality. 
You may have even seen a post on social media that said homosexuality is found in 400 species of animals. And they try to prove that since it's in nature, that homosexual must, homosexuality must be okay. In fact, homosexuality behavior is actually found in well over a thousand different species of animals. But that should be beside the point for any Christian that has two functioning brain cells. Why should the behavior of animals determine how we as humans act? You will also find these behaviors in the animal kingdom. Animals practice incest. Animals practice cannibalism. Territorial aggression. If you have ever seen a praying mantis, it's probably a woman. Why? Because she ate her man. I'm glad my wife is not a praying mantis. They also eat their own feces. If you go to the zoo, they might throw it at you. Should we approve of such behavior just because it's in nature? Obviously not. To use the behavior of an animal to make a point about how humans should act is foolish and most certainly a weak argument. Then they'll go on and say, well, there's a gay gene. But for the past 40 years, scientists have been trying to find a gay gene, an indisputable physical marker that leads to homosexuality. For over 40 years, nothing has been found. In fact, last year, after scientists completed the largest study to date, the lead scientist, the author, Andrea Ghana, she's a geneticist, not at a Christian university, but at MIT and Harvard universities. And she concluded after this study, there is no gay I don't know if they're ever going to find one. Maybe they will. But please understand something basic for the Christian. All because you were born a specific way doesn't excuse you to act any way that you want. Right now, scientists are also trying to find an adultery gene. If it can be proven that someone has a gene that predisposes them to be unfaithful to their spouse, will it then make it okay to cheat on your wife? Of course not. Imagine the Pandora's box that would open. Please, Christian, remember, every single one of us is a sinner. But all because we were born a sinner doesn't mean we can then enjoy our sins. Number four, they'll also say, well, I was made this way. It's who I am. We live in a day and age where the prevailing message is what I do sexually defines me. It's, I, it's who I am. I am trans. I am gay. I am bi. I'm non-binary. These labels become our identity. Think about why this is important to the world. Because if the world can make what they do, who they are, it would be wrong to preach against someone's essence. But the Bible doesn't teach that what we do sexually is who we are. The Bible teaches that what we do sexually is a moral behavior and thus either right or wrong. Makes it that simple. Think about it this way. Um, in my first sermon in this series, we put a picture of a t-shirt. Does anybody remember the, t the name of that t-shirt? Come on. I'm sure some of you own a couple. Supreme. Supreme. Does anybody own a Supreme t-shirt? That's probably a good thing. Um, do you realize that some of the more expensive ones cost like 1500 bucks? 
It's just a white T-shirt with a red label that says Supreme on the front. To be honest with you, it'd be really easy to make. Go down to Walmart today, buy yourself a three-pack of Fruit of the Loom white T-shirts. Go home, get your iron press out, and iron on a label that says Supreme. Now, then, maybe you can make some money. Go to eBay and give them a deal. Say, Supreme T-shirt for 800 bucks. Send it to them, but then when they look at the label on the inside, do you think they're going to have any problem paying $800 for a Fruit of the Loom T-shirt? Probably. Who has the right to label a T-shirt? It's not just anybody. It's the one who made it. Who has the right to label me? The one who made me. Who has the right to label you? The one who made you. You don't get to label yourself. You don't have the authority to do that. Only God does. That should be a good thing. Number three. How should a Christian respond to homosexuality? Number one. I hope that you'll write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. But number one. We need to stand with God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice all of the sin. The sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, the thief, the greedy, the drunkard. Very few would argue with me if today I preached a sermon about greed being a sin. Why? Because the Bible just called it one. You saw it. Nobody would come up to me after the service and say, I don't believe stealing's a sin. Nobody's going to say that adultery isn't a sin. But if the media got a hold of this sermon, do you know what they're going to focus on? That I called homosexuality a sin. But understand, all I am doing is reading from God's word. Friend, if idolatry and adultery and greed and drunkenness are sinful, then homosexuality has to be, because it's literally in the exact same sentence in God's word. If the Bible calls homosexuality a sin, we shouldn't shy away from calling it a sin too, no matter what the world threatens to do to any one of us. I, listen, I'm almost done. I'm convinced that this issue and the issue we're going to talk about next week will be the start of the reason why the church in America gets persecuted. Because of where we stand on God's word right here. But all because the world threatens persecution doesn't mean we back down from God's word. Secondly, be consistent. Christian, you need to get this one. Be consistent. A number of years ago, before I was here at, your church, at Central Baptist Church, I had someone come into my office after a homosexual began to attend our church services. They asked me, how should we treat them? I looked at the deacon right in the face. I said, I'm going to treat them just like I treat you because you're just as much of a sinner as they are. A homosexual person's biggest need isn't my condemnation. It's Jesus. They need Jesus. But where better 
to hear about Jesus than in our church. If you have a friend who is homosexual or a family member who is homosexual, please know they will never be singled out when they walk through the doors of our church. I'm not going to run in my office next week if they come with you to church and pull out this message. It's already been preached. I'm not going to do that. And nobody here had better look down a judgmental nose at them because you're just as much of a sinner as they are. Number three, we're going to be loving. But all because we call homosexuality a sin doesn't mean we're not loving. It doesn't mean that we're homophobic. I believe that pornography is a sin. Does that mean I'm pornophobic? I believe adultery is a sin. Does that mean I'm adultery-phobic? I'm just making up words. If, if they can make up words, we can make up words. Right? Listen. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. I believe that removing the stigma of sin from homosexuality is one of the most hateful things that our society has done for homosexuals. I also believe that declaring the truth that homosexuality is a sin is the most loving thing that our church can do for them. We don't purposefully hurt homosexuals in the same way. We don't beat up people that are struggling with pornography. We try to help, and we definitely try to show them the love of God. If you have someone in your family that is homosexual, show them God's love. Don't shun them. Don't ostracize them. Don't put them in a gay conversion camp. Love them. Pray for them. Stand on God's word and be consistent. Lastly, and most importantly, give them the gospel. Romans chapter 1, the same chapter talking about homosexuality says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Friend, the gospel is more powerful than homosexuality. It is the only thing that can solve our biggest need. We need a savior to save us from our sins. And the gospel gives us the savior. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. If you're here and you're lost, you don't need most of all today to go to lunch. You don't need most of all today to get a nap. You don't need most of all today to get out of this place. You need Jesus. If you're here, you can accept Jesus today. The gospel is strong enough and powerful enough to forgive you of every sin and to save your soul. And we would love to have the honor to show you in God's word the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can leave this place knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have a home in heaven. Will you please stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? If you're here, you say, Brother Hayward, I know for sure I'm saved. Would you please raise your hand? Raise it up high, be proud. Put it right back down. If you're here, you say, Brother Hayward, I'm not sure. I don't know if I were to die today if I go to heaven or not. Would you please raise your hand? I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you. Christian, 
Maybe you have a loved one. Maybe there's someone that you know. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We're located at 700 North Walnut Creek Drive in Mansfield, Texas. You can visit our website at cbcmansfield.com or follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CBC Mansfield. Thanks again for joining us.